If you go to the British, Lib uh, the British Museum and look for room 50, you will see in it the most remarkable little clay artifact. It's about two-thirds of the length of this lectern and about half, maybe two-thirds, of the depth of my Bible. And when you look at it, it looks like it's just covered in squiggles and lines and scores and marks. But actually, it is something called Cyrus's Cylinder. It was written or commissioned by one of the greatest, or in terms of political and military power, rulers the world has ever known from the Persian Empire in around 539 BC. His name was Cyrus. He had come down with his forces and powers and overcome the Babylonian Empire just a few years before. And the Babylonian Empire had been the empire that had taken the southern kingdom of Judah, that's Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes that did not get taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722. The Babylonians had taken them into captivity in 606 BC. The people that you would know from that era probably are people like Daniel or Jeremiah or Zerubbabel or Joshua or as my children used to call them, zero bubbles. <laughs> and in 606 and 595 and 586 or 585, the whole of the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity. They were ripped out of Jerusalem and they were planted in modern-day Iran, where they were told that they had to live. And their identity was squeezed, and all kinds of things happened. But in 538 or 539, Cyrus's new empire decided that it was going to release all the people that were in vassal kingdoms over which the Persian Empire were overlords. And that included this little tiny kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom. And he, on this scroll instructed that they could go back to their homeland and that he would help them to rebuild their temple. Not only could they go home, he would pay for the building project. So they started to do that in 537. They returned a prophecy that was fulfilled that had been given by Jeremiah in chapter 29 of Jeremiah when the people of Israel are being taken into captivity. Do you know, you'll know this verse. You'll, many of you will know it. Have any of you ever had a card that somebody has sent to you and it says on it, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to bless you and not to harm you. Plans to prosper you and not to bring you down. Plans to give you a hope in the future. Anybody ever received a card like that? I've received plenty. That's from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. There's a slight problem with it though. Because just before it, God had said to the kingdom of Israel, you're going into captivity for 70 years. Your lives are going to be destroyed. You're going to be pulled apart. You're going to lose everything, your identity, your purpose, your significance, your value. You're going to have to start again because I am taking you into captivity because you've disobeyed me. You've ignored my commands. You've run away from what I've asked you to do. And now it's time to face the consequences of your actions. But I will bring you back in 70 years. So they're taken into captivity and around 68 years after they've been taken into captivity, a man called Daniel who probably went with them in the first or the second tranche of people leaving, so he's been there perhaps 50 or 60 years himself, is reading the book of Jeremiah or something like it or that letter, we don't know what it was, 
And he reads these words that says, after 70 years, you're going to come back. I'm going to restore you. And he begins to get excited. It's recorded in Daniel chapter 9. Everybody has forgotten God's promise. How could it be that the people of God en masse could forget what God had said to them? That's what happened. And as he reads about God's promise to restore them, he does the maths and he works out, that's not far from now. And at the point that he reads it, it's, it's an impossibility that they could ever go back to Jerusalem. They're never going to get there. They're never going to make it. There's just no way out. They are in Iran. They're in uh, Babylon. They're stuck in Persia forever. They're never going anywhere. And then all of a sudden, he watches as global history, as Leaders with the greatest military might sweep down and overtake the overlords that have overtaken them, break their back, and then announce that they can go home. It is a miracle. It is the intervention of God in global history. Israel should have known that that had happened before. He did it with Egypt. He did it when he brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. He did it when he pushed them through the promised land He instructed the people of Israel that they were to take that promised land, every village, every town, and every people, and they ignored them in there too. They never did it. They never fulfilled God's commission for them, Israel. They never carried out everything that God wanted them to do because they thought they knew better. They kept amending his plans. They kept saying, you didn't really mean that. You must have meant this. You didn't mean give you all of the cattle. We'll keep some. You didn't mean take away all of the idols, we'll leave some. You didn't mean demolish everything that stinks of paganism and idolatry. You must have meant to leave some of it. That's too much to ask. And in 537, they start to go back to Jerusalem. They start to rebuild. And then they stop again. I want to talk to you this morning about what God says to them when they stopped again. You have to jump 17 years or so from 537 to 521 or 520 BC. Nestled within our Bibles, there are a series of books that tell us what God said to the people when they stopped pursuing what he'd asked them to do. One of them is the book of Zechariah, which I think you've touched on as you've been making your way through the book of Revelation. This apocalyptic book with strange and mysterious illustrations and pictures and parables and visions of horsemen and chariots and plumb lines and Joshua and Satan and the pierced one and the promise that God will have his way no matter what happens, that he will do it not by power, not by military might, not by economic significance, not by political persuasion, but by his spirit. The picture of a kingdom that is not established on the backbones of slavery or manipulation or control or seeing people as less, but instead upon the righteous reign and rule of God. Written probably or recorded probably around about 521, 520, 519. The other is a tiny little book that I'd like to take some time with you this morning to explore. It's only two chapters, and it's called the book of Haggai. It's always weird that it's pronounced Haggai when it's spelt Haggai, but I leave that up to you to work out. 
And it's actually four prophetic words delivered between August 520 or 521, depending on how you work it out, and December. And the last two are delivered on the same day. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Haggai. Now, I'm aware that it's hard to find. So just use the index. If it's any help to you, it's on page 1,242 of my Bible. We know little to nothing about this man. But we know that God raised him to speak four key messages into the lives of the people of Israel. The first one is recorded in chapter 1. The second one is recorded in chapter 2, from verses 1 to 9. The third is recorded in chapter 2, from verses 10 to 19. And the last one is recorded in chapter 2, from verses 20 to the end of the little book, verse 23. Let's read chapter 1, or part of it anyway. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, that's how we can date it so accurately, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai saying, is it time for you to live yourselves in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you that earn wages, earn wages to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider how you have fared. Second time he said, consider. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house lies in ruins while all of you hurry off to your own homes. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the soil produces, on human beings and animals, and on all their laborers. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month. 
God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. It is my hope that we will read the whole of the book of Haggai, but I want to pause in between the most important part of what I'm saying, which is reading these words, and try to help you to understand what it is that God might be saying to us today, to you at home, around the world as you join with PCC in worship this morning. And to you as a fellowship, I've been praying about this word for about five weeks now. And I believe it is a word for your church from God. But I am fallible and broken, and you must test it. You must explore scripture. You must consider what God might say to you today. It's not my job for you to consider it. It's your job to consider. It's my job to deliver what God has laid in my heart. I remember a man saying to me many, many years ago, you know, Malcolm, I want you to remember something in your pastoral ministry and your preaching ministry, that you are always accountable for what you preach, every word of it. And I said, I take that very seriously. And he said, and as often as you can, remember the hearers that they're accountable for what they do with it. God bless. See you next week. <laughs> you are accountable for every sermon you've ever heard. You're accountable for what you've done with it. In one ear and out the other, as the smell of prime roast drifts you towards lunch. Every believer is accountable for what you've heard. You will stand before God. And he will say to you, what did you do with the teaching of Pastor Jeff Lee? What did you do with the teaching of David Beresford? What did you do with the teaching of John Smith, of Maldwin Jones? What have you done with it? Be careful that you don't end up being so sharp and pointing out the theological errors of others that you miss the accountability of your own life before God for what you've heard. So with that in mind, <laughs> let's think about what God might be saying today. This first message comes to these people, and we don't know why they've stopped, but they've stopped the work. They might have been discouraged. They might have been tired. We know why. We know the reasons that we can't give for them stopping the work. <clears throat> it's not because they've no resources, because they've built lovely houses for themselves. They've got their own paneled houses. They've got their own lovely dwellings. Everything's, they've got money in the bank, metaphorically. It's just that they've stopped focusing on God's work. Maybe 20 years is too long to expect people to keep their passion up. I understand that. Maybe 17 years after having come back, and by the way, it's likely that only about 20% of the southern kingdom of Israel actually bothered to return to Jerusalem at all. Imagine that. Imagine being one of God's people and this mighty powerful leader says you can go home and 80% of you say, no, we'd rather stay here. We'd rather stay in the rubble. We'd rather stay as slaves. We'd rather stay with nothing. We'd rather stay with no identity because the journey back to rebuild is too hard. We're going back to a desert. We're going back to ruins. We're going to have to rebuild the temple. We're going to have to rebuild the walls. We're going to have to rebuild the streets. We're going to have to fix the plumbing. We're going to have to fortify the city. We're going to have to start from scratch as if there's nothing left. It's just too much to ask. You could be talking to many Christians who have decided after the pandemic, I'm not going back. 
You can be talking to many churches who have said, you know what, it's just too hard to rebuild. Who have decided that they will spend the rest of their life in isolation and loneliness away from the people of God because the call back is too hard. The call back is always hard. The call to rebuild is always hard. The call to get stuck in again always requires sacrifice. It always requires a shift. And when you've fallen into the trap of allowing something else to set your priorities because of weariness or tiredness, it's really hard to shake that and to step into something. But here in this text, God says to the people of Israel through the prophet Haggai, it is time to rebuild. Consider your ways. He uses the word consider three times. And in the passage, he says the hardships that you have experienced, the droughts that you have gone through, the barrenness of the land, I sent it. Do I think God sent the pandemic? No. Do I think he permitted it? Yes. Because if he's sovereign, he could have stopped it. There's a world of difference between causing and permitting. But he saw you through it. He saw you in it. And he understands the pain that it has caused us. He understands what happens when political certainty strikes at our souls. He understands the fear of rising prices. He knows what it feels like to hear the Bank of England say, we're raising interest rates by 3%. And immediately you go to your calculator and work it out and say, well, that's another 200 pounds a month. He knows that. But none of it stops you serving him. None of it means that he comes second. He says, in the midst of real life, I know what's happening. And it's time to serve me. So my first simple word to you from this powerful little book is, it's, it's time to rebuild. Go to the hills, he says in verses 9 and 10, and bring down the wood and bring down the timber and build. I don't think that means build here, although I'm glad you're fixing the roof. <laughs> but I do think it means invest in my kingdom. I think it means invest in my people, invest in my communities, invest in your local church, invest in what it means to be the people of God in this city at this time for this moment and make it a priority. This is not a hobby, folks. You don't fit church in with your golf and your football and your kids' sports activities on a Sunday. You fit your life around God's purposes and God's plans and God's call and God's heart. And that is sometimes tough. It means that we have to make sacrifices. It means that we have to set priorities. I remember once having a conversation with a, a lady in a church that I led, and she said to me, Pastor, I couldn't possibly be present every Sunday morning. And I said, why is that? And she said, because I have three children, and they've got to go to violin lessons and pony club, and um, they've got to go to lacrosse, and they've got to go to fencing, and they've got to do, one of them was sixth, got to do her, her 11 plus prep at six. And she listed about a dozen things to me. 
And I said, have you ever thought that some of those things could stop so that you could be present in the house of God together as a family? And she said, that's far too much to ask. If you make church a hobby, don't blame God when your children see it as an irrelevance. It is not this fellowship's job to bring up your kids. That's your job. It's not the youth pastor's job to make sure that your children are godly. That's your job. The youth ministries team is to help. It actually isn't the preaching team's job here to make sure that you are reading the Bible. That's your job. This is not the spoon-feeding moment. This is the moment that helps you get deeper into God's Word, hungrier for God's presence, yearning more for God's kingdom. But honestly, look in your heart, and I can't answer this for you. Is this the feeding center? Is this the only time that we come with God's Word open and our hearts attentive to His Spirit? I've lost count of the number of times people have said to me, Pastor, I'm spiritually dry. And I want to come alongside them and help them. I want to encourage them. I want to pray for them. I want to ask for a breakthrough. But none of that can fix it if they're not on their knees before God. If you only eat once a week on a Sunday, don't be surprised when you get hungry. If you only take a drink once a week on a Sunday morning, don't be surprised if by Monday evening you're thirsty. This is not what we are called to be. We are called to be the people who continually rest in God and feed on His Word and hunger after His Spirit and are filled by Him. Somebody say amen. amen. Well, that's good. More than one said amen. Thank the Lord. It's time to look forward and not back. It's time to build. It's time to invest. It's time to lean into all that God has for you. It's time to see the opportunities of this moment, not only the sadnesses and heartbreak. It's time to take a stand in our culture for what is right. It's time to be people of justice. It's time to stand up for the marginalized and the poor and excluded. It's time to say that the church is the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken world. All around us, there is a theology and a politics and a social narrative of despair and darkness and uncertainty. We are people of hope. We believe that God still reigns. We believe that the gospel still works. We believe that the Spirit is still active. And we are called as a local people to demonstrate that to cities that are broken and regions that are on their knees. That's the first word. Now let's look at the second. Chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left amongst you that saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now, take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and take courage, all you people of the land, says the Lord. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides amongst you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. 
and I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. If the first word is about starting again, rebuilding, the second word is about remember, it's my strength you need. It's my resources that will accomplish this. And there are a couple of really pertinent, powerful challenges. I'm 52. That's not a challenge. That's just a fact. And I've been a pastor for 35 years. And I've been a pastor long enough and in enough churches, and I've had the privilege of pastoring in a number of churches, and I've loved every one of them. To know what it feels like to hear somebody saying, you're not like the last one. <laughs> one of my best friends was, my elder, was one of the elders with me in Bournemouth, where I led for 10 years nearly. And his wife was also a very good friend of ours. It's called Sheila. They give me permission to use the story in case you need to check it. Her father was called Frank. He was the most remarkable man. He had a very high voice, and he was extremely deaf. And no matter where you were in the service on a Sunday morning, at about quarter to 11, he decided it was over. <laughs> and he would get up, and he'd say, we're done now. <laughs> and he'd start to move the chairs and lift the hymn books. And I might only have started preaching. <laughs> I'd be like, Frank! Frank! <laughs> I'm still preaching. No, 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 you need to stop. We're done now. I loved him. I really loved him. The women in the women's fellowship weren't so keen on him. He would help on a Wednesday. It was from 12 o'clock until 1. And when they get up at 1 o'clock, some of them 80 or 90 using Zimmers or walking frames to help them, Frank would move their chairs. And if nobody told him that his chairs had been moved and they tried to sit down, it was catastrophic. <laughs> so we ended up having Frank and somebody who kept an eye on Frank. So that when he moved the chair from Doris, somebody else would put a chair back. So that Doris wouldn't sit on the floor and hurt herself. One, one, one Friday morning as he was approaching the end of his life, I went to see him because he had started to buy hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of packets of cereal for a little tiny bungalow, and he was leaving them in his kitchen, and his wife was ready to kill him. And she said, Malcolm, could you please come and talk to him? I said, of course. So I went, and went down and sat down with him, and he said, it's lovely to see you. Come and sit down. And I sat down, and he said, I'm so glad you're here. I said, oh, good, Frank. I'm glad to see you. He said, I need to talk to you about the new pastor. And I said, oh. He said, I like him, but he's far too long. He takes far too long to say a thing. Somebody needs to have a word with them. And I said, Frank, that is me. I am the new pastor. And he said, oh, yes, so you are, but you're still too long. <laughs> I knew Frank loved me. It's much harder to hear that criticism when you know the people that are saying it don't love you. And here in this passage, there's a hint at that. As God says to the people, which of you remember this house in its former glory? The answer is none. None. None of them saw it the way it used to be. None of them could remember it. None of them. 
And they must have been heartbroken as they thought about what they once were. But God wasn't calling them to live in the past, nor was he calling them to ignore it. He was calling them to remember the past and use it as a propulsion into what he had for them next. To live in the past is idolatry. To ignore it is bad stewardship. To learn from it is a gift. And to apply that gift into the day is why we call it the present. God was saying to them, you know the stories of this place. Stories have a way of becoming more golden with nostalgia. It's really amazing to me that people never remember the tough times. They never remember the moments that they were ready to kill the last pastor or the one before that. They never remember the bad things. They only remember the good things. Our minds are wonderful filters of selective choice. But in this second word, God says to them, use the memory of the past as a propulsion into the future. Use what I said to you about what was as, an, as a magnet to draw you into what could be. And his promise is, I am with you. I will build it. I will provide. I will grant my peace. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. And in this place, people will find peace. But don't live in the past. Don't try to recreate what was. Remember it with thankfulness. Don't sacredize the building. Don't sacredize a service sacredize what God was doing and ask him to do it again. But let him do it in whatever way he chooses for his glory and his honor. And he draws them into the future by helping them look backwards and then saying, I am going to do something. Now, the important thing about this for the moment is actually this has never been fulfilled. The temple has been rebuilt, yes, and then it was destroyed again. Does this refer to a heavenly temple that will somehow be established at the end of time? I don't know. I'm not sure about that at all, but some people think so. Or does it refer to God building something that is so big and so glorious and so beautiful and so indescribable that it's not about bricks and mortar? In the New Testament, there are three words for the word temple in English. One of them is... um, Heraklion or Heraklion, and it means a temple dwelling or an outskirts of a temple. A second means the inner court of the temple. The third means the Holy of Holies, the very center of the Jerusalem temple or the tabernacle, the place in Jewish theology where the presence of God dwelt. They knew he was everywhere, but they also recognized and believed that he dwelt powerfully at the very center of their cultic structures, their church, their temple buildings. That word is naos. And every time Paul says in the New Testament, do you not know that you are a temple? He uses the word naos. What do you look at when you see Plymouth Christian Center this morning? The strange Irish preacher at the front? The building that is getting its roof done? The person on the other side of the balcony that you've ignored this week because you really don't get on with them very much? Do you see the structures, the challenges, the difficulties, the holes, the gaps? Every church has them. Do you see them? 
God sees those two. But I'll tell you what else he sees. He sees a holy of holies. This ragabond, vagabond, bedraggled, bemused, and broken group of people is the dwelling place of God. Somebody say, praise the Lord. This is where heaven touches earth. Try to get this into your theological mind and think about it for the next 20 years and you will not get to the bottom of it. Heaven itself is not holier than that. And God tells us two things about this naos. One is that you are it. Every local church is it when we gather in his name. The second, which is even more mind-blowing, is that you individually are it. Somewhere deep within your life, however old or young you are, however strong or weak you might feel, however near or far you might feel from God, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, here is the New Testament reality expressed here in a different way. At the center of your soul is the naos, the holy of holies. You are not working toward becoming holy. Holiness is working its way out of the redemptive work of Christ in you, and one day you will be spotless. <laughs> and he is there now working in you. He has accomplished that in you already. Let his work, which was begun at the cross and will be finished at the cross, and encompasses your salvation and your glorification and your justification and everything else in between. Let it work its way out. And for a moment today, don't rest in your own strength. Don't rest in the 10 things you have to do. Rest instead in this promise of God. I will finish what I have started in you. I will bring it to completion. This church will fall and falter many times. Elam has fallen and faltered many times. We have been on the brink of extinction many times. We have made disastrous decisions. We have appointed unusual people. <laughs> the idea that we always get it right is beyond my comprehension. It's a, it's a warped sense of the sovereignty of God. God doesn't work with people that always get it right. God works with people who knows they don't. And he somehow, in the middle of our mess and our wrong decisions and our squabbles and our fights and our misunderstandings, is still at work. I thank God for that because otherwise I would be finished. So the second word of encouragement to you is very simple. God hasn't finished with you yet. And he's got the resources to finish the job. He's made the promise and he always fulfills his promise. Third word. Verse 10. Shall we just go the whole Old Testament? Nobody wants to do that, okay. <laughs> On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests for a ruling. If one carries consecrated meat in the fold of one's garment and with the fold touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if one is unclean by contact with a dead body and touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, yes, it becomes unclean. Haggai then said, so is it with the people and with this nation before me, says the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, 
for it is unclean. And now consider what will come to pass from this day on. Before a stone was placed upon a stone in the Lord's temple, how did you fare? When one man came to a heap of 20 measures, there were 10. When one person came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and heal, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Consider from this day on, the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is there any seed left in the barn? Do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree still yield nothing? From this day on, I will bless you. First promise, the first word is a call to rebuild. The second word is a promise that God has the resources and will do it. The third one is profoundly challenging. Fundamentally, God asks Haggai to ask the people two questions. If something that is holy touches you, are you holy? The answer is no. If something that is unholy touches you, do you become unholy? The answer is yes. In other words, sin is communicable. Holiness is not. No one can make you holy but your choice. Holiness for a church is about each individual in it making a choice to pursue God's purposes and plans for their lives. It's not infectious. Which is contrary to much of the teaching that you might hear, but biblically it's clear. Holiness is not infectious. Holiness must be entered into. It must be accepted. It must be intentional. It must be chosen. Whereas sin is infectious. Sin can spread like a virus across a community or a people. And suddenly they are saying that what is wrong in Scripture is actually right, and what is right in Scripture is actually wrong. Sin can bleed its way into a whole culture so that a nation can reinvent truth. Sin can bleed its way into a family. Sin can bleed its way into uh, friendships. Sin can bleed its way into streets and communities where you see people who are balanced and clear and honest and fair and just becoming unbalanced, unclear, unjust and unfair where others are othered, where color becomes a decipher of significance, where gender is used to manipulate and control, where greed spreads like a cancer across a community. And this is the place where Zechariah and Haggai come closest to one another. Because in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, the whole of the book of Zechariah, written at the same time, says this, return to me and I will return to you. There's a call here, and here's what God is saying to the people of Israel as they rebuild, as they try to engage in this work. He says to them, you're rebuilding the temple now. You're going to start that, but don't forget to start your soul. Don't forget that I'm not just interested in the bricks and the mortar of the temple. I'm interested in your inner life. And he asks them a question. He says, do you not think that I saw that when somebody came to you and you said that you were going to give them 20 bags worth of something, actually you tipped the scales and you gave them 10 bags? Do you not think I see the injustice and the hypocrisy of that? Do you think I miss your inner life? He's saying, do you think that there's a, a bit of you that is hidden from my view? 
and that you can rebuild a temple but not be rebuilt yourself. That is not how this works. He says, if you want to see this rebuilt, you've got to allow me to rebuild the inner life of your soul and help you to understand again what it means to be holy and sanctified and set apart and faithful and true. But he doesn't leave them in this place of despair because he then says, look at what you've got left. If you've got one fig tree left and one vine, if you've got one oxen in the stable, if you've got one thing left, it's like the book of Habakkuk, I can bless that. I can use that. I can take the tiny little bit that you have left and I can rebuild out of it into all that you need to be. It's an assurance that you may be down, but if you have God on your side and you're willing to turn to him, you are not out. It's a call to understand that the call to holiness is a call to hopefulness. The call to holiness is a call to fairness. The call to holiness is a call to justice. The call to holiness is a call to righteousness. God doesn't want you just to rebuild so that lots of people attend PCC. He wants to see a people holy and set apart for his name that shine into the world and are living stones knit together for his kingdom. That's the third word. The last word, delivered on the same day. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai. He was busy on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall fall, every one by the sword of a comrade. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. If the first word to these people is a call to build and the second word is a, an assurance of the resources and the third word is a call to holiness and an assurance that God will bless them as they follow and pursue his purposes. This last word is the most remarkable promise of ultimate restoration. To understand it fully and completely, you need to consider that in Jeremiah chapter 22, 24, some 70 years before this moment, God has already used this idea of a signet ring. And as the people of Israel were being taken out of Babylon and into, out of Jerusalem and into captivity, God said to the king, Coniah or Jeconiah at that time, I have taken you like a signet ring from my finger and I have cast you into the sea. He says to Israel 70 years before this moment, it's time for you to face the consequences of your actions. And at that point, they cannot escape it. Don't say that's unfair of God. He's given them time after time after time to make a response, and they have continually refused. And he says, now is the time for you to face the consequences of that. And now here we are around 520 BC, and God says to Zerubbabel, the governor, who is a direct descendant of Jeconiah, I have taken you as a signet ring, and I have placed you on my finger. The time of your judgment will come to an end. I will restore you, and I will bring you into intimacy again. I happen to think in eschatological terms that this has never yet happened. 
that there will be a moment when God brings all of his own to himself and that we will be as close as a signet ring on his finger. And this is a promise of ultimate restoration. And the language of it from verses uh, 22 and 23 is so strong. I will shake kingdoms. I will move nations. I will move heaven and earth to restore you. Nothing can stop me. Nothing can alter my plan and my purposes for you as you approach God's table with me. Let those four words, and I believe they are for you, ring in your ears this morning. God is calling you to rebuild whatever age you are, whatever context you're from. Stop looking back. Start looking forward. Remember, He is with you. And he will provide, and he will sustain, and he will bless, and he will strengthen. That's the second word. The third word is very, very, very simple. Make sure that you are not building on the outside and forgetting to build on the inside. Let the rebuilding be a spiritual holiness, sanctifying rebuilding, that you might become all that God wants you to be on the inside and the outside. Let this be a reformation of the heart, not just of the structure. And lastly, remember that the God that sees you and knows you and called you and loves you will sustain you. And he will bring you to a place of such profound and deep intimacy with him that you will be like a signet ring in his finger. In fact, he's already done it. In many ways, Romans chapter 8 tells us that we have been given not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Abba. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his friends and his disciples. And he said, eat this bread in remembrance of me. Because this bread is my body, broken for you. After supper, he took a cup of wine and he drank from it. And then he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, drink from this, all of you. Because this cup is the new covenant of my blood, shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Later on, the Apostle Paul says, every time you eat and drink this bread and wine, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. So examine yourself that you don't eat or drink in an unworthy fashion. Folks, let the 6th of November be the morning that you make sure your account is right with God and with each other. You're already forgiven because of the cross and the blood of Christ. Now live in it. Give him your sin. Give him your shame. Give him your mistakes, your mistakes, your feelings, your regrets. Give him everything that's wrong. If you choose not to, if you choose not to be right or get right with God today, then don't eat the bread. And don't drink, drink the juice. Because in so doing, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. The scripture is clear. This is a table for those who want to walk with Christ. 
Now let me tell you something as the stewards come forward. That's my pen. I lost that pen yesterday. Thank you, Lord. By the way, don't think that that's just a flippant remark. We can have a theology that thinks we scare the Holy Spirit away by being normal. What nonsense is that? You can scare the Holy Spirit away. There have been times in my Christian life where the only strength that I have had is to get to the communion table. And all I've been able to do is open my mouth and say, I'm here and I love you. And that's enough. Because we practice this practice every week in our churches. Do you do it every week here? Once a month in this church. You can get really familiar with it. And you think, oh, this is communion. This is a grace moment. It is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Our theology says that there are only two places where we encounter God in this kind of way. One is when we are baptized and ordinary water is used in a powerful way in our lives. You only do that once. The other is every time you come to the communion table, God imparts special strength. He comes and meets you in a way here that he can't meet you anywhere else. He imparts something to us. So often when I come to this table, I come with my mouth open saying, that's all I can do. I come in my weakness and my brokenness and my loss and my desperation and my weariness. I come with all of my failures. I come with all of my uncertainties. And I say to you, Lord, I love you. And if you do not meet me in this moment, I will not make it through another week or another month. And he has never let me down. He'll always meet you if you come to this table with a humble and an open heart. So as the stewards wait upon us, we will eat the bread as we receive it and drink the juice as we receive it. Many times Jesus was invited to dinner in the New Testament. The home of Simon, Mary, and Martha. Zacchaeus. But only once did he invite people to his house for dinner. Today he invites you to eat with him. Come to this table, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because you love the Lord a lot, but because you love him a little and desire to love him more. Come not because you are perfect, but because you know you aren't. Come not because you have all the answers. Come because he is the answer. And may the blood of Jesus Christ keep you in eternal life. Amen.
Would you please wait upon us?